This special episode of Bad Faith Podcast is taken from the launch of the Sustainable Culture Lab, a cultural think tank combating ethnocide and building eftopia. In conversation with DC art professional and cultural writer Claudia Watts, Barrett discusses the meanings of ethnocide and how we as a society can move into our own personal eftopia. This episode was recorded at Eaton House in partnership with Candor Labs. All right, so we're going to get started. How are you feeling? I feel fine. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> so why don't you just start with telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of like your work, your research, and how you happened upon this uh, concept of ethnocide. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot. I, it's a question I anticipated. but um, So yeah, m- uh, my name is Bear Holmes Pittner. I'm a... I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, and um, for like the last four or five years or so, I've been able to write uh, opinion pieces where instead of being a journalist where they send me someplace and say, hey, write this and just come and say what the news is, I could give my my insight on it. And that kind of allowed me to cultivate my voice and really think about my opinions and what I thought a bit more because when you don't put your work in print, it's easy to have like a good idea that lasts for years that you can tell at like cocktail parties and stuff like that. But like once you put something in print, you have to have like a new insight. And that helped me refine my ideas a lot and I, it accelerated this process. And um, eventually what I realized is when I would write a lot of my pieces, the things that would hook people were not what I was intending for them to be hooked on. And that created a dilemma where it's like, I don't know what I need to tell people to get them excited. I just know what I, I, I think, and then we'll see if they see what I'm trying to show them. And due to this like linguistic impediment or disconnect, I realized that I needed to start honing and cultivating a word to articulate what I'm seeing instead of using like the adjacent words that are more commonplace when we're talking about race or culture or you know systemic oppression. And that kind of took me down this path to explore language a bit more. And ethnocide was the first word that came out of that. And that's that's the process. And I'm sure I'll, I'll you know I'll clearly explain more about ethnocide, but that's a bit about who I am and how we came to be here. Well, obviously the next thing you have to do is flow into ethnocide. You know, I mean, well, not even. I'll do it for you. So, ethnocide, you know, <laughs> as Barrett has explained to me, is essentially the systematic destruction of a culture. And it's a companion word to genocide, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I'll, I'll make a quick amendment uh, because ethnocide, you destroy the culture, but you preserve the people. So, with genocide, you just try to eradicate, like, or remove a whole swath of people. But with ethnocide, the physical bodies remain, but the culture has been taken away. So it's like one destroys the body and one destroys the soul. Right, exactly. And genocide became the more widespread word because if you destroy the body, then the soul goes with those people. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Eftopia. Oh, okay. Um, so like, where did that come into play in terms of like developing ethnocide, the idea of it? You know, did you have like a solution before you coined the problem? So no, I did. So all right. So evtopia is a word that I've I coined. That's a, a counter to ethnocide. Um, I didn't have the word initially. It was 
ethnocide came about because I was looking for a word, as a, as a race and culture uh, journalist columnist, I was actively looking for a word to describe the racial dynamics that I saw in the US. And I didn't feel that race was that proper framework to describe these dynamics. And I felt that culture was the more applicable uh, framework, especially when you look at, if you look at what ethnocide means, where you take the, the culture away from a people and you keep the people, like that is the transatlantic slave trade. That the goal of the, that was to extract African people from the continent of Africa, keep their bodies, but ensure that they can't do anything in connection to Africa. They can't, they're, they're no longer called what they were called in Africa. They're no longer able to speak their language. You're breaking up families. You're taking their clothes away. You're taking away their hairstyles. All the cultural connection they had to Africa, you're taking that away. And that became the framework for America and plenty of other places where you're trying, they, the goal is to create a society um, where there's one group of people who have lived via extracting the culture of other people, and there's another group of people that are forced to live uh, a marginalized, oppressed existence because their culture is constantly being extracted and they get to be exploited in perpetuity. And so ethnocide was the word that um, I, I found, I coined, um, because I, 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 found, I created the word and then I was like, has this, does this word exist? What's the chance of me making a word that no one else has, has, has thought of? And you know, that's pretty a big idea. And then I found out that the, the man who made uh, the word genocide, Raphael Lemkin, he coined genocide in 1944 and also coined ethnocide in 1944. But everyone forgot about ethnocide because no one thought that um, the destruction of culture and the preservation of people had happened. It was, we were very focused on World War II and what had happened to the Jewish people in Europe and also what happened to the Armenians in Turkey like a, about a couple decades before that. Um, so the word already existed and Lemkin's work actually helped with ethnocide. But to get to Evtopia, what ends up happening is when you have the word ethnocide and you're looking at American society through ethnocide, you just see it everywhere and it makes you sad. It just makes you depressed. And the goal of my work, at least for me, wasn't to make me a sadder person or to make other people sad. So I had to then start exploring what is a counter to ethnocide. And what lots of people in the West talk about as like a good society or an ideal one, they use the word utopia. And you know, I grew up with that word for a very long time, but then once I started looking at the word, the word's a satire. It doesn't mean what we think it means because Thomas More, when he wrote that word in 1516, when he wrote the book and the book Utopia brought about the word Utopia, everything in that book was a satire. And to a certain extent he had to do it because if you wrote anything that wasn't like very pro uh, the Catholic Church or the Church of England. Well, not Church of England at that time. Church of England was like, I think, three years later, you know, um, but, uh, um, uh, or the Protestant Church, you would, you know, they'd, they'd kill you. So he had to write a satire. But utopia as a word, he took the Greek prefix EU, which means good. 
and he took the Greek prefix OU, which means non-existent, and then he got the Greek's you know, word topia or topos, which means place, and just lopped off the E and the O to put utopia, which means a good place that can't exist. And so we've been for 500 years trying to make good places that can't exist while pretending that they could exist. And if we disregard what words mean to that degree, then we're really just setting us ourselves up to fail where like words don't have a meaning. So if you wanna make a good place, if you wanna live in a good place, then you need to have a word that means good place. And so that's what uh, evtopia means. And then there's you know a philosophical and like a way to like create and act and build that. But as an African-American living in an ethnocidal place, without a doubt, I view this dynamic as a dystopian one. So if you're going to counter a dystopian environment, you should act, because dystopian means, you know, that means bad. So bad place, the juxtaposition, the opposite should be a good place and not a good place that doesn't exist. Because if the opposite of a bad place is a good place that doesn't exist, then we're just gonna live in bad places forever. So what does the good place that exists look like in your ideal world, kind of based on your research, your writing? Yeah, um, so I think one of the, the things that impedes Western thought about this is we are fixated on like Christian ideals of like there being uh, like a heaven, a place where there's no tension, where everything is just idyllic forever and you don't have any kind of give and take back and forth and people try to create these utopian places without this tension and that just creates like authoritarianism. So like the good place that you have to create actually requires consistent effort and it requires a pretty understood philosophical vision that allows people to collaborate. And so I would say, um, so an example I use a lot um, is the, the plaza, you know, like the, the town square. Um, and, and in the Renaissance, they built a lot of cities with town squares as being the focal point because when you put a communal place at the heart of a city, that encourages everyone to go there regardless of whether they're rich or poor or whatnot. It, it forces members of a community to be together in an equitable space. Um, that, that doesn't mean that there's not tension or different ideas, but you, you, you foster that environment. Like you build your city to have that. And as an African-American in the South, I, I grew up in places where there's no concept of a plaza as a thing that you would ever have in a city. There are things that are similar to that that would live on like the white parts of the town, but if like my parents or grandparents in the 1950s decided to go to the public pool or the public whatever, all these white people would jump out of the water and go someplace else. So there's not a plaza. And as America's also many ways was built around the railroads, they would build towns where like the train track was the middle of the town and the other side of the tracks is where black people would live and on one side of the tracks where white people live. It's not like, you know, the colonizers got to America and there were already train tracks going through towns. Like they built these towns with division as the center. 
And so as an American living in a place where division at the center, physical dividing lines, countering that with an Evtopian plaza type of thing, I think is the right way to get in the direction where we need to get to. And another really good example for Evtopia, and I, maybe I'm putting too much on, on the Dutch, but the Dutch are very fascinating because they've had to reclaim a lot of their land. Like the, a lot of the land that's the Netherlands was the North Sea. And so they had to create dikes and you know, dams and canals and windmills to literally make land appear. And so when that land emerges from the sea, that's not private land. Like that's communal collective land where they've made land show up for everyone to be able to equitably benefit from it. And that's a really profound idea because most of us view the land we live in as like something that's fixed, that we showed up and it's here, especially in America with manifest destiny and colonization, we act as though there's just an infinite amount of land that people just get to access in perpetuity that's never gonna go away and we can abuse it. But like the Dutch, they have said, oh, we need this much land for this many people. What, where do we put the dam? How many windmills do we make? Where do we put the canals to make sure that people can live on it? And coincidentally, if you ever go to the Netherlands, like people have their windows open all the time. Like they're the curtains, like you'll be in your house and the people across the way, their curtains will open and no one's really bothered by someone looking into their house while they're eating dinner or doing whatever. And that really speaks to like a, a, like a, a communal understanding that exists with those people where they definitely have private space, but everything that they created is kind of like a, a plaza where it's all communal, like your house is in the plaza too, and the plaza is the, the land that they made, and that, that word that for the land they made is called a polder. And so, anyways. So I was reading <laughs> that, right. you know, you talked about ethnocide and how it happens over time, right? And mm -hmm. so when we think about Evtopia and kind of moving towards that, that would obviously also happen over an extended period of time. And so have you kind of laid out, I guess, a framework for how a society can move toward that? Yeah. Um, so clearly the making of that framework will happen over time. Um, but the, the big thing about it is it's a micro and a macro thing. So, so you have to do things to make yourself a good place at an individual level. So like here at Eaton, I, I go to the meditation here every day. I think that makes me better in some fat, you know, facet. I can't, you know, I'm not, I didn't like get plugged up to a machine before I started going and now they're like, oh, your cholesterol's down or anything, like I don't know. Um, but I, I, I guess what I would say is there's definitely certain habits and practices that people can do on a daily basis to make themselves their best iteration of their self that they could be. And one thing that's interesting about the US is the words we use to solve problems have like an undertone of violence and they also have the tone that you just need to do it once and it fixes the problem. And so 
we talk a lot about like a, like a silver bullet, looking for a silver bullet, which is like, that's really weird that that's how we think you need to solve something by having like this, this tool that can kill a bunch really quickly. So like, but it, also the notion of a silver bullet is that it solves everything at once. You don't need to create consistent practices and habits that being a good person isn't a thing that you're born with or predetermined. It's a thing that you create every day. And so that tension, that struggle of making yourself and creating yourself to be good, that's an, an inherent evtopian struggle that's just existence. So at a, mac, at a micro level, like those are the types of things that people have to figure out because, and also it's not a fixed thing. Like what I need to do every day to be the best Barrett Holmes Pitner is not gonna be the same thing for somebody else, but well, I have an obligation exactly. to figure that out. I guess that's a, another one of my questions. It's like when you talk about ethnocide, there are many victims, not just the black community. And I would also oh, think yeah. that the experience is kind of more of a spectrum a spectrum and not like, you know, just bam, this is what it is. So when you're dealing with people who have different experiences, how right. do you, I guess, get them, one, to recognize the ethnocide, but then to get them moving in the right direction to get to the same endpoint, even though they're all starting at different places? Ah, okay, that's a, that's a really good question. So I'd say one of the key things, and this is how, um, ethnocide in America impairs our capacity to do what you just said, is that language here isn't based around equality. It's about power dynamics. And so as, as an African American, the words that I say, and to many people will have less legitimacy. I will need to have more reference points or sources to for someone to believe that what I'm saying makes sense. And there's plenty of other people who can just say whatever they want just and due to being white and maybe white and over six feet tall or like a white male over six feet tall, they just act as though all of their ideas are correct. And so that, that inequality and that power dynamic that's attached to words makes plenty of people less receptive to constructive criticism because though their words don't matter because they're true, they matter because of the power that they feel comes with those words. And, and so that's, that's a hard thing to get around. And what I've tried to do is by using a word like ethnocide that has a foundation in, in you know, Greek and, you know, ain't, you know, European linguistic structures and was also used by a, a Holocaust survivor, it's very hard to delegitimize that word because a black person saying it. And it makes it harder for uh, white Americans or people whose language is more attached to power dynamics and not truth to discredit that. And so I, I hope that the word ethnocide makes a dent in that impediment because another thing that's really key about the, the individual practice you have to make is you, and, and I, I, I have like a list of things that I'm practicing and to 
you know, and, but one of the key points is you have to be able to articulate why you do what you're doing. Not because if you do it, it's not legitimate unless you say it to somebody else, but for something to be good, it needs to have the potential to exist beyond yourself. And so if you don't have an obligation to articulate why you're doing something to somebody else, then you can't really find out if it's good. And you also can't, ha you have to remove the power dynamic from what you're doing, and so you have to not use like religious dogma as a thing that justifies your action. Because now you're just into a dynamic where I believe in a particular thing, this particular thing I'm saying is the best, and if you disagree with it, well, that's irrelevant because I have some power based on I've who knows what. And so that's how I think you kind of get to that equitable space is if you remove these like crutches that are based on like power and inequality and like systemic ethnocide, you can get to better conversations. And so at an individual level, we have to have practices to make us better. Um, at a at a one-to-one -one level, you have to ensure that people can't use these normalized impediments to prevent the conversation from continuing. But then at scale, you have to be able to articulate the benefit of creating stuff like a plaza, which, you know, it's really fascinating to think about. But like in the US, no one thinks that we need to make plazas or communal space at scale. We really advocate for the benefit of privatizing everything and that through private space, that's where you get freedom. But that just doesn't make any sense because if I'm by myself, does it matter if I am or am not free? Like I'm all alone. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what I think if I'm all by myself, just private. It only matters once I start having a conversation with another person. Okay, my next question is kind of like, um, how do you keep things from going like in the opposite direction, right? So say we're aware of what ethnocide is and we want to reclaim our identities. How do you balance reclaiming your identity with respecting other people as they're on their road to like reclaiming theirs? How do we keep things from like being fragmented and going to like an extreme ethnocentrism? What, what, so what do you mean by your identity? Well, so we as African-Americans, you're saying our culture has been stripped, right? Right. So to get to Evtopia, wouldn't we need to kind of go back into that, dive into that, and kind of reclaim that identity? Our African identity? Yes. Ah, so that's a good question. Okay. So here's, and this is where it gets really complicated, and it's difficult for African-Americans and white Americans, basically everyone that lives in the United States, is that one's identity and one's culture has a natural connection to place. And America, due to being ethnocidal and not really having what we consider, what at least what I consider to truly be culture, because my definition and understanding of culture is the collaborative work that people in a particular place do to survive. Uh, that's why the culture in a very cold place will be different than the culture in a warm place. It's not because you know, cold people are better or worse, it's you have to do different things to live in those different places. 
And you also have to, not only have you have to do stuff to survive, you have to do stuff to not be miserable while you do it. So then you create art and all these rituals and traditions, but that's tied to like where you physically live. The US and colonization has created this notion that your culture is a thing that you take with you wherever you go and it just won't ever change. But it's gonna change when you're in a different place all the time. And so the dilemma that Americans have is people are trying to reclaim a culture that's literally a continent away. Like white people do the same thing. Like they will claim this notion of a, like a utopian Europe as their culture but like Europeans have been fighting and killing each other forever. There's not been this utopian bliss ever. Like those people didn't like each other to such a degree they nearly destroyed the earth. So like the, the, the idea that someone could claim that whole continent, that's outrageous. And so what we're really struggling with is that due to like the sustained division and the normalization and expectation of that division to always be the same in the US, we don't imagine what American culture could actually look like. Like the words that we use are impediments of our own imagination. And, like, and that's something that ethnocide naturally creates because if I'm an oppressor and I'm denying culture to a whole group of people, I'm not gonna give them the language or the philosophy to articulate their oppression. There's no benefit in me doing that. There's also not gonna be a benefit for me to think of that stuff so that I could potentially feel bad about myself. So we're in a vacuum where no one has a reference point or a notion of what culture could look like without these sustained divisions. So, like, as African people, or, you know, or people, you know, from the diaspora, there's definitely large components of African culture that we need to reclaim to have a better understanding of our identity and our and our our history. But the goal to going for going back is so that you can make a new type of going forward. And that's not a thing that I think we discuss that much. So with going forward, um, this is the launch for the Sustainable Culture yeah. Lab. So what role, like what do you see the lab's main function being? And like how, or are you at all, like how can other people get involved and engaged? What type of activities can we expect to see? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. Um, right off the bat, at least from now through 2020, the, the main focus is like two, kind of three tiers, um, with education and awareness being one of the, the, the first ones. You know, that's why everyone has a book, everyone has a zine, because I feel once you have language to better articulate your environment and the world in which you live, that just empowers people so much more to live and, and, and take decisive action. Like this might seem like a trivial example, but it's like if you go to a paint, paint store and you only know three types of blue and then you get there and there's like 30, 40 different shades of blue. Like you'll leave there seeing different shades of blue and knowing what to say, call them. But when you went in there, you're like, oh, that's just blue. It's like, no, 
it's a it's way more than that. And now, really casually, like you're just empowered. You can articulate your world better than when you went in because you have words to describe stuff that hasn't changed. You just have the word to describe something that's fixed, and now you're empowered. I think a key part of SEL is fostering that empowerment by education and awareness. The second part of that, uh, of the mission for 2020, is cultivating Evtopian spaces um, and seeing what kind of impact we can have by making these spaces. One of my big uh, initiatives is I, I feel that the Mexican tradition of Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, is, um, provides a very profound opportunity to create Evtopian spaces specifically for communities of color. Um, every year, the Mexican community will they'll make altars to remember their loved ones, and through that process, they take about a month or so to make these altars and think about these people and ofrendas, yeah. You know, my Spanish is really bad, so I just say it all English because that's the language I'm good at. Um, but so they, they, they make all of these and they invite people into their homes and they tell their stories, but also like death, it's really traumatic. So you create a safe space for everyone to deal with trauma collectively. And like that's what communities need. And if you make something that, that annually strengthens your community and allows prof profound conversations about your history and your future and your present, then that makes a big difference. And the US doesn't have anything like that at a national level. We're, we're fortunate that this is becoming widespread because there's so many Mexicans in our country. And I think at a time right now where the Latino community is getting demonized quite a bit, and also the African-American community, they're trying to prevent us from voting and doing the stuff that we did to, that helped Obama become president. This type of structure, especially because geographically Latinos and African-Americans live adjacent to each other and are the ones that get suffer their repercussions of ethnocide the most, it creates a natural opportunity for them to come together to then strengthen their communities. And coincidentally, and this is why I think it can be like really transformative, Day of the Dead happens October 31st, November 2nd every year. Every two years, that's when we have our national election. So there's this structure that already exists that's gonna galvanize Latinos to think about their culture and think about what matters to them. And then literally once they're done with it, they'll vote. Like, I'm not telling anybody who to vote for, but if you weren't voting before and we live in a democracy, it's better that you vote. And I think, so fostering that, and uh, there are some people here that I've already collaborating with for Day of the Dead and creating that type of engagement. So you are doing something for Day of the Dead in 2020? Yes, yes. We, the, the plan is to do it. This is the launch, so there's plenty of work I have to do throughout the year to ensure this happens, but that is the goal, is to, is to do a, a Day of the Dead initiative that works with artists and activists and get out the vote, GOTV type people, to see if this can manifest in a way that not only strengthens like Latino and African American communities culturally, but maybe encourages them to participate in democracy to a degree that they hadn't done before. 
So are you going to have any other, I guess, opportunities for engagement that are a little more intimate throughout the year, you know, where people can really sit down and educate themselves and have discussion with other people about ethnocide, where they're seeing it, and, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, there's going to be a lot of that. Um, Just like, like, tell us what we can look forward to, Barrett. Like, okay, sorry. I, I, get, <laughs> I get all in my head a lot and have complex answers. Um, <laughs> Um, so Eaton's already talked to me about having another gather gathering next month, uh, so something in November, something in December, then planning 2020, what kind of a consistency for events um, on the website, which is scl.community. You can go there, give me your email address, we can start forming an online community. There's an Instagram, there's Twitter. Uh, what's, your, what's your name? What's my name? Oh, oh the, they know my name. Uh, the, Insta the Instagram and Twitter, it's all SCL uh, underscore community, and the website is SCL.community. Um, so they're pretty simple. Um, we're pushing a couple hashtags, so you can, if you, you can always do hashtag SCL. But if you see something during your day that strikes you as being ethnocidal, you can do hashtag everyday ethnocide. Uh, if you see something that strikes you as evtopian, you can do hashtag everyday evtopia. But this is a conversation that we feel that in DC we can have consistent gatherings here to foster the discussion, bring more people into the space, but also cultivate it on uh, online uh, with photos, hashtags, all that kind of stuff. And so, and as a writer, I will be pushing out like opinion pieces and stuff like that talking about this a bit more in depth and how it manifests itself. Wonderful, so now we're gonna open it up for Q&A from the audience. If anybody's got a question, you can raise your hand. We don't have any stage Hey, Bakar. Hey, can you? We need, can someone give them some microphones? Or maybe Moss could do it, I don't know. Someone. We have two, yeah. We got two, we got a bunch. Hi, um, I'm Ursula. <laughs> Hi, Ursula. Hey. Um, I use she, her. Um, so how do you see, is there a physical space? I know you were talking about like plazas and all that, but is there a way to adopt and kind of reclaim third space places? Um, I know those aren't as popular anymore and I know folks are trying to kind of adopt that concept of a space where there's not necessarily a transaction that needs to occur. I know Starbucks likes to think that there are a third space, but you have to go in and purchase. There's you know societal rules. You have to you know be bathed or you have to look a certain way to enter into that space. So what would, um, I guess, this new concept in third space, space, third space places, how would those kind of marry? Yeah, so. So here's the dilemma, um, and this is where I think philosophy is really important because we live in a place that doesn't have equitable space and doesn't, people don't feel capable of articulating the necessity for it. So you have to kind of co-opt other spaces and turn them into an equitable evtopian space. And so with a, a third place space or you know a, a Starbucks or or Eaton hotel like you know there's plenty of people here that are members that have to pay to be here but then there's free events and so 
there is a balance. I think one of the th one of the issues that we have in the West is we think about Eftopian stuff at a micro and a macro level where you inject yourself into some environment and there's not any inherent tension or conflict. Um, and due to that expectation, there's a desire to not have a philosophy. But if you have a philosophy about what you're trying to do, you can inject yourself into any space and articulate why you're there and what you're planning on doing. And so you can go into whatever space you want, but if you know why you're there and you can tell people why you're there and tell them in a way that could make them understand that this makes sense, it's not really about reclaiming a space or this space is that type of space. It's I'm here for this philosophical reason and this is what I'm gonna do while I'm here. I, I also, another thing that's interesting is like America really, the notion of privatization influences how we view everything. And so even when we try to create equality or equity, we talk in languages of ownership. Um, and I think we need to inject like another word in that space that's a communeship. But like to commune with people in a space consistently, you have to have the same philosophy when you go into that space. If you're just gonna own it, you don't need to have a philosophy or a reason for why you do anything because it's all power dynamics. And so I think that goes into like the first space or second space or third space, whatever space it is. If you, if you don't have a philosophy while you're in there, what matters the most is the power of the other person who already controls that space because you're viewing yourself as being under the whims of their ideas and not capable of articulating an idea that's better than theirs. I think, I think that you did that pretty well. You know, I had a, a mentor tell me once, like, it doesn't matter what room you're in, as long as you're there, you're meant to be there. And it's like, you just have to move with that in mind. Right. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Jordan uh, from New York, uh, from the lower Hudson River bioregion, better known as New York City. But that's how I define part of myself. Uh, I, uh, my totem is coyote, which means I'm master of disguise and invisibility. It well, is, I see you. You may not be seeing what you think you're seeing. Okay, uh, it's, it's an indigenous concept. It is my cosmovision. It is the vision of me in the universe. Cool. And yeah, it is. Um, if I could offer just three reflections, and first, if I didn't say congratulations, it's a, a great space, great gathering, uh, lots of uh, food for thought. Uh, if you don't know the work of Felicia Young in New York City, uh, creating the, the, the protection for the community gardens, uh, those are our plazas. Uh, they are spaces uh, in which the community gathers for just to sit, reflect, whatever. Um, and you will see photos of myself uh, dressed as either the spirit of fire or the volcano god. Um, but that's another story. Okay. Uh, second, it, the work of Queen Mother, Dr. Deloise Blakely, the street mayor of Harlem and the uh, ambassador of goodwill to Africa, essential in terms of reparations uh, for what slavery has done to all of us, but to the African-American community, of course, especially. And third, 
if you don't know the Flushing Remonstrance, uh, almost 375 years ago, guaranteed religious freedom in America when the merchants of Flushing said to the Dutch governor uh, of New Amsterdam, you have told the Quakers you can't worship anywhere except in the Dutch Reformed Church. And the merchants said, any faith tradition, I think they even mentioned Muslims and Hindus, this is 375 years ago, you're welcome in Flushing to worship as you want. And the Dutch governor backed down. Thanks. And uh, I look forward to more gatherings. Thank you. Cool. Do we have any more questions? Hey, go up at the front, Paris right here. I uh, love the conversation, of course. Thanks, Thanks. for having it. Uh, I guess some more I just wanted to get kind of like your definition on like what you kind of hope to achieve with this lab and like where you think culture maybe is going or should be going. Is it something that you feel, because it seems like you're worried about preservation, but like I wonder if you mean that in like a sense that we should be taking note or that we should be kind of like keeping our cultures kind of the way they are. How, do you, how much responsibility do you think we should uh, put into like changing and moving forward? And what do you think that's going to mean culturally? So what do you mean by preservation? Uh, well, I more mean like, what do you mean by preservation? Is what, is, is what I'm saying, I, like, like, what do you, what, like, are we, are we saying like, uh, is it important to like preserve and like crystalline our, our cultures in the sense that like, is it important to like um, keep what we have now? Or is it in terms of like, where, where should we be moving? Like, is that like, is that more like the goal of what this would be? is more what I'm saying. Yeah, um, so that's a real good question. So, so I guess when it comes to culture, a big notion is that it's static, that it's fixed, that it's not inevitable, that it's going to change a lot. Um, and so, and I think that's a very, yeah, it's big in America to think of it as fixed. And it makes sense why we view things like that because like whiteness isn't a fluid identity. Like you look it, and if you look it, you get to be that forever. But if you mix with someone who doesn't look it, then you just aren't it ever again. And so this inherent static foundation for what culture is in America makes people more inclined to think that you can sustain a static culture forever. I think, especially with the idea of the common space plaza, that idea makes people more receptive to the inevitability of American culture changing quite radically in an equitable, like non-destructive type of way that is really unavoidable. And the goal of trying to prevent that from happening is actually way more destructive. And if you acknowledge that what we've had for most of America is that destructive idea of culture, then you have to now ask a very profound question of how much of our previous culture do you want to keep? And so like, we've really been living in the inversion of what most of human existence would consider culture. Um, so, Doing a 180 
actually requires less work and would make you know America quite different, but probably way better. All right, well, thank you all so much for being here this evening, and hopefully we'll see you again for another talk. Cool, thanks for coming. This episode of Bad Faith Podcast was produced in partnership with Candor Labs. To learn more about production with Candor Labs, log on to candorlabs.com. That's candor with two A's.